The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Becky, here with my sweet friend Melanie. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. So let's dive into Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hello, listeners. We're so excited you're here. Hope everyone's doing well. We've gotten quite a few new listeners, so we're so excited about that, and we appreciate you all being with us here yes, today. for sure. We're so glad you're here with us. Um, so keep sharing Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Um, I just put a bunch of stickers, actually, in the mail yesterday, so oh, those fun. are coming out. Um, we keep growing each week, and it's all because of you, so thank you, thank you so much. Keep sharing. Keep sending us your addresses so we can get stickers to you. It's so fun. Our Rocky Mountain family is just growing I know. all over. We have listeners overseas. It's so great. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, so I want to say a big thank you to Shaylin M. from Wyoming for this case today. We appreciate you letting us know about this story. So let's get right into it, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. August 10th, 1996, around 3 p.m., a phone call came into the dispatch center at the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Department. The man who called from the cell phone was calm, not at all panicked or crying. He told the dispatch operator that his wife and young son had fallen from a cliff in the Lost Dog Trail area of Green River, Wyoming. I've got to say that my dad was born in Green River. He's a Sweetwater County baby. There so, you go. I think, yeah. didn't we talk about another case from Sweetwater? I think we did. Think we did mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, now on Lost Dog Trail, it's just like a dirt trail seven miles outside of Green River. But it honestly feels like you are 700 miles away from civilization. I haven't been there myself, but the pictures, I mean, you are out in the middle of nowhere. That's awesome. The trail leads to the cliffs overlooking Flaming Gorge, um, impounded by like the Flaming Gorge Dam. It's the largest reservoir in the state of Wyoming, yet it do actually does span into eastern Utah as well. So its capacity is 3.8 million acre feet of water at its mask. It's big. That's huge. Mm-hmm. The reservoir is a winding snake-like body of water, which is guided by an extremely steep-sided canyon on each side. Kevin Alvstepper with the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Department took the call and headed out to Lost Dog right away. The caller tried to describe his location, but had a hard time giving dispatch clear directions. After about a 40-minute search, the first responder spotted a man sitting on a lookout point. Yeah, just under the lookout point where this man sat... Get this, Mel, laid the bodies of his young wife and his small child. They had both fallen over the edge of the cliff and fell nearly 200 feet onto the jagged rocks and boulders that lay at the bottom. Yet this man, this husband and father, just sat, just sat waiting for help. I mean, I'm already not not liking this case. This is already sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, Something seems off, right? Yeah. I mean, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to have a good poker face during this case, so... That's okay. But like, I mean, honestly, what would you do if, you know, heaven forbid that your family had taken a fall like that? I mean, anything you possibly could, right? You'd do anything you could to get to them, to, to get help them. them. Yeah, anything. Yeah. yeah, or even, I mean, if you can't get to them, wouldn't you, after calling the ambulance service, wouldn't you, like, run out to the nearest road and, like, try to flag down the first responders and, like, bring them in as fast as you could? Anyone would know that the emergency vehicles are going to have a hard time finding, like, this little needle in a haystack. So if you couldn't get your loved ones, I don't know about you, but I would be frantically trying to flag down the first responders ASAP. Yeah. You wouldn't like be just sitting on your butt looking at them. Yeah. View and that's honestly what he was doing. He yeah. was just sitting there. Yeah. 
James Robert Duke, who goes by Bob, was a young father who was married to Leanna Mae Davidson Duke, who was 22 years old. The couple had one child, a beautiful little boy with the most like little pinchable cheeky yes, ever, so Eric Robert Dukes, who was five years old. The small family had spent the afternoon riding four-wheelers around the lost dog area. And you can go on our social medias and see those cute little cheeks. Yes. Yeah. They had stopped at the cliff and they were just were, you know, walking around as a family, taking in the beautiful views. Some reports say that the family was planning to enjoy a picnic that day. The outlet that outlook did have you know, a beautiful view. But honestly, this is no place for a family picnic with little ones. The area was like flat, but it was covered in like loose rocks. I mean, three sides of the, out- of the outlook had like a sheer drop off. Not a place to like hang out with a little boy. I'm sitting here having a panic attack yeah. because I am terrified of heights. We took our kids to the Grand Canyon one year. Me too. I hate the Grand Canyon. It was the scary thing. I mean, yes. it's gorgeous, but no, I just beautiful. was in a panic Time. So this is already giving me oh, nightmares. I am like phobic about yeah, heights. Me too. For real. Mm-hmm. I know. We, we, we're just such a pair. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier that day, Duke was thirsty. So he alone walked back to the family vehicle to get himself a drink, leaving his wife and young son. Duke said his son had been chasing lizards ugh, around the edge of the cliff. I know. This is just like the worst ever. Yeah. Okay. I'm not buying this, his statement for even a second. Would any mother allow her child her like baby who had just barely turned five years old to play run around and chase lizards on a lookout point i mean i wouldn't let any of my kids but also not first child you're a little more intense with your first child i have a 17 year old i wouldn't let my 17 year old like play at a lookout scary the spot that the young family was allegedly resting at was a three-sided lookout point it was a sheer 200 foot drop on three sides and this is where they think is a good spot to let their baby run around? No way. Mm-mm. No, no way did Leanna let her firstborn baby run around on this outlook. I'm not buying it for like even a second. I don't believe him. Same. Duke said while he was back at the family car, he heard his wife scream his name. When he looked towards the cliff's edge where she and Eric had been standing, they were gone. Duke said he ran back to the area and looked around. Then he said he peered over the side of the cliff you know, down the straight 200 feet, and there he found them. His wife and boy lay on the rocks and boulders below. Their bodies were contorted from the impact. Allegedly, Duke could hear gurgling coming from them after the fall. Duke said he tried to get down to the bodies, but he couldn't find a safe way. Yeah, mind you, I want to remind you here, he is a four-wheeler and a vehicle, literally steps away. So he called 911, he gave vague directions, and spent the next 45 minutes just sitting and waiting for emergency help. I could tear apart that sentence. Like, the the responders did say he gave really vague, horrible, just what fishy, you know, washy, is that <laughs> Fishy-washy directions. <laughs> the emergency 911 operator said that they could not get good directions out of him. It was just so vague. And then he just plomps down and sits for 45 minutes with his family. At the, I'm, I'm just not buying it. So Lieutenant Doug Stewart from the Green River Fire Department was there at the scene of the suspicious death. He and his fellow fire, firefighter brothers found an easy path down to the base of the cliff. It was literally 30 yards away, Melanie. And within minutes, they reached the bodies of Lieta and Eric. 
It wasn't a treacherous descent, and he should have found it quite easily if he would have just opened his eyes and looked around. So within a matter of minutes, the entire emergency team reached Liana and her son, Eric. Both mother and son had died. The emergency responders requested a Stokes basket to use for transportation of the bodies. Yeah, so a Stokes basket is something that we've probably all seen before, whether you realize it's a Stokes basket or not. Um, a Stokes basket is a stretcher used in the search and rescue missions. Um, essentially, it's a stretcher made of like wire, like a metal wire with raised sides. Mel, you know what I'm talking about? I'm using my hands here and I'm on a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it has raised sides to protect the person in the basket. It can be raised by like a helicopter support or like mounted on an ATV or even lifted with ropes and carried out by individuals. Lieutenant Stewart and the other first responders were touched by the conditions that Liana and Eric had lost their lives. They carefully loaded their broken bodies onto the Stokes basket. They first loaded Liana, then they loaded little Eric into his mother's arms. They carefully positioned their bodies so Liana's arms perfectly encircled her young son. Lieutenant Stewart said the firefighters lovingly patted Eric's head and Liana's hand with affection. Lieutenant Stewart whispered to the small boy a sweet little sentence. He said, quote, so sorry, little buddy. This isn't right. I know it's heartbreaking. These emergency responders perform more rescues of people who wander too far into the wilderness in Sweetwater County than fighting fires. They had worked countless rescues and every single firefighter felt that something was wrong in this case. The Duke recovery wasn't right. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. So let's take a second and thank our wonderful sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. And we are back. A big thank you to our sponsors. Yeah, so Bob Duke was acting weird, for sure. Emergency workers and law enforcement at first tried to give Bob Duke the benefit of the doubt. You know, everyone mourns differently. Shock victims can act very strange. Yet his reaction at the cliff's edge was definitely atypical. Um, Duke chose not to walk down to his wife and young son. Most people would definitely find their way to reach their loved ones, right? Yes. He could have easily made it down to his family. And at the very least, like he could have comforted them. If what he reported was true, that he had heard like gurgling coming from them, he could have been with them in their last moments here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So firefighters reported that Duke just came across very, quote unquote, they said the word nonchalant about the entire situation with the first responders. He was calm, and if he was asked into questions, he would just answer it in the most simple way possible. He almost came across as disinterested in everything happening around him. He was not on edge. No tears, no questions, no sobbing, no, like, shock or lack of understanding what was going on. He just didn't want to be with the bodies of his family. Yeah, he seemed fine, like, calm even. Too calm. After the rescuers arrived back at the fire station, the concern over the deaths still weighed heavily in the air. It was palpable. 
None of these experienced men felt like this was an accident, so they all decided to write out a statement of what they had experienced and observed and record their feelings and impressions of the scene. Which I think is so great that they just knew. Yeah. They did this just in case their statements would be needed in a court of law. So cool. And hint, hint, Mm. spoiler alert, these statements would be used in court. Yes. So the authorities in Sweetwater County had their suspicions about Bob Duke and what really took place on that beautiful overlook. There just simply wasn't evidence of any foul play. Leanna and Eric's death were ruled accidental and the case was closed. Just two weeks after their death, Duke collected a life insurance check for $60,000, which today would be about 116000 And the case was closed. Is our, our episode's over, right? No. Uh-uh. Not yet. <laughs> this is, it was closed until about two and a half years later. Robert Broberger, who was a lifelong friend to Bob Duke, had some information he desperately wanted to share with the police. Roger and Bob Duke were a mismatched pair of friends. They were very different than each other. Yeah, Bob Duke was like clean cut, really kind, active in high school programs and events. And Roger was the opposite. He was definitely rough around the edges. You know, always seemed to be like bumping into trouble in his teen years and early 20s. Though they were very different, they remained close friends throughout the years. Roger used to look at Bob's life and think who could ask for more. Bob was successful in his career and worked for himself. He had a beautiful, kind wife who was a wonderful mother to Bob's baby boy. His friend, Bob Duke, was literally living the American dream. Or so it seemed to everyone around him. Sometimes people just don't really appreciate or see their blessings that are right in front of their faces. It's very true. So on January 4th, 1999, Roger sat down and shared a story with Lieutenant Mont Meekum of the Green River Police Department. Roger had a lot to say. He had carried around an incredible tale for almost three years. He had spoken to only one other man about the secret. Roger's father told him to go and talk to the cops. But not just any cop, an old family friend, Lieutenant Mont Meekum, was a good and fair man. He was a father to another old high school friend, Roger and his father knew they could trust Lieutenant Meekum to at least listen and consider the story. So Roger shared the secrets he had been carrying around. Roger told Lieutenant Meekum that he had received a phone call from his old friend, Bob Duke. Duke was living out in Houston, Texas, which is about 1,400 miles away. The two friends, uh, Duke and Roger, had been talking a little more frequently the last few months because Duke had a big favor he needed from his old friend whom he completely fully trusted. This wasn't like a favor for any old person. This was a very specific favor. Duke told Roger he needed him to get this kill his parents. He offered Roger $20,000 to kill his parents. Larry and Roberta Duke, who were Bob's parents, had always been so kind and caring over the years. Why would Duke want his parents murdered? Yeah, believe it or not, this little favor that Duke was asking wasn't as shocking as most people would think. Duke had made a similar plea for help a few years ago, Melanie. So weird. Yeah. In fact, Duke had offered Roger $23,000 to do something else for him. Now, what do you think that favor was, Mel? I mean, most likely to kill Duke's Mm -hmm. wife's child, right? Mm -hmm. Leanna and Eric. Duke said he wanted out of family life. No more wife, no more son. 
Duke told his friend that he knew Roger needed the money, and that's why he asked him first. Oh, what a thoughtful friend. Oh, oh my, my goodness. I, you guys can't see us ruling her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a favor, he's offering 20 grand to your friend who is, like, struggling in life. Really good friend. Jerk. Mm-hmm. So back in 1996, Duke laid out a plan he had created for Roger to follow so he could earn the 23000 and kill Duke's wife and child. And the plan went like this. Step one, grab the 22 shotgun Roger would leave by a shed in the backyard. Step two, the family would have several families over and friends over for a barbecue. So the event would be, you know, busy and distracting to any potential witnesses. Um, step three, Roger was instructed by Bob to shoot at him first. He told him to aim for his arm, but to not shoot the bone. He didn't want to experience the pain. What a tough guy. I can't imagine telling someone to shoot me in the arm, but be careful of my <laughs> bone. I can't. I can't believe you would trust anyone to do that. I know. Step four, Roger was then told to shoot Leanna, Duke's wife, in the head for a guaranteed death. Step five, Roger was then supposed to shoot young Eric, just five years old, in the head again for a guaranteed death. And step number six, um, he said pepper the guests of the barbecue with gunshot. Duke said Roger would need to, quote, take out as many neighbor kids as you need to so it wouldn't look so isolated. He is the worst human being ever. My gosh, this plan is insane and so, so stupid. I can't believe that Duke would just like so casually plan this horrible scene just to simplify his so-called terrible life. Right? right. We've said it before. Get a divorce. That's all he needed to do. Yes. Get a divorce. Mm -hmm. That's okay. In fact, Roger said that exact thing to Duke. After hearing the entire plan, he told his friend, that it was totally out of line and he was crazy. He told his friend to just go get a divorce. Get a divorce. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people do it every day. Just get a divorce, dude. Yes. Then just days after refusing to help out with Duke's plan, Roger read the headlines in the news about Leanna and Eric falling off of a cliff at Flaming Gorge. And he just, he knew. Duke had done it himself. He had murdered his wife and son. Roger made a decision he later regretted. That decision weighed heavy on his soul for years. He made the decision to not go to the police with his story. He felt he had, like, a lot to risk at the time. It would be his word against Duke's, and he was no choir boy. So how did he know the authorities would even believe him or this crazy story? He had no proof. Plus, he would destroy one of his only true friendships he had in his life. How did he know that this wasn't just like a horrible coincidence? Accidents happen, right? People die in strange situations. This is what he told himself. Yeah. Yet in his heart, he knew the truth. His old friend, his friend since they were just boys, Duke, had murdered his wife and son. Leanna was a good woman, a good wife and an excellent mother. Eric was just a baby. He had just turned five and he adored his daddy. How could Duke take their lives? Roger buried these feelings, the suspicions he had about his old friend, and, you know, as it always does, life just went on. Duke was living a new life in Texas, and the two didn't talk too much. That was until two and a half years later, Duke called and told him his parents were the next to die. That is how the two men, Roger Broberger and Lieutenant Montmeekum, came to sit down together on January 4, 1999. Roger spewed the incredible story out, not forgetting a single detail. We can only imagine the weight that must have been lifted from his soul on that day. Can you imagine carrying that secret around? Oh my gosh. 
I just we would just eat you alive. So Lieutenant Meekham believed every single word Roger shared with him. He could sense the fear Roger had been carrying for years, and he could feel the pure panic uh, Roger had felt for Larry and Roberta Duke's safety. He knew what Duke was capable of, killing the people who loved him the most. Lieutenant Meekham contacted the FBI and the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Department and shared the story that Roger had told him. The deaths of Leanna and little Eric had never sat right on the minds of these lawmen, and they were eager to reopen the investigation and maybe scratch at some old wounds in the community. Roger's secret had set out a powerful team of investigators. So I love this. They were not messing around. The Federal Bureau of, of Investigations, Sweetwater County Sheriff's Department, and the Green River Police Department, they were all ready to pursue this man who dared killed his wife and child, and next on his list, his own father and mother. FBI agent Todd Scott performed a deep background check, and his motive for murder of his parents was pretty clear. Money. This is the motive a lot of times. Yep. Mm-hmm. Duke had lived off just the insurance policy cash from his wife and son. He had not been earning any money by working. If his parents were dead, he would have had a big influx of cash. So plus, he was up to his eyeballs in credit card debt and monthly payments of, you know, toys that he purchased. He had definitely dug himself into quite a large financial hole. He was broke and needed the money. And, you know, heaven forbid this guy go and get a job and work. Right? Murder people. Oh, my goodness. The Green River Police Department set up what they needed to capture and record phone calls between Roger and Duke. Duke was under the impression that Roger was ready to participate in these murders. So law enforcement wanted to capture, like, each and every utterance of the plan. Roger had agreed to fully participate with law enforcement and do what he could to stop any more killings. So we have to give Roger props here. It took like a lot of guts to go to Lieutenant Meekham and share the story. I agree. And then he didn't stop there. He agreed to do recorded phone calls. And like that must have been really hard. I kind of get the impression that Roger didn't have very many close friends. And he really, really cherished his friendship with Duke. Yeah. And I think it really speaks a lot of his character that he was willing to put it all on the line and to help you know, make recompense for what what happened in the past with his wife and child. Good for him. Yeah. So on the first recorded phone call, Roger was told by Bob Duke that his brother, Mike Duke, was going to do the job. So apparently they have two children that, like, want to kill the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so Mike Duke was going to murder their parents, um, planning on January 24th, 1999. So Bob Duke asked Roger if he'd be willing to pick up Mike in Denver act as a lookout while the job was being done, a.k.a. like the murders were happening, and then return Mike to Denver, and Roger agreed. On January 7th, just three days after the first recorded phone call, the next recorded phone call between the men took place. Roger told Duke that he was thinking about accepting Duke's offer of the $20,000 to kill his parents. Duke sounded hopeful on the phone. He suggested Roger use a 22 caliber gun because it was a quieter weapon, quote, no louder than a door slam. So Duke said the sooner the better to go through with their plan due to the cold weather. He pointed out that all the neighbors will have their windows and doors closed up tight and people wouldn't be, you know, spending time outside in the freezing temps. The cold temperature would give them a lot less opportunity of being caught by a nosy neighbor. 
Duke said he would provide a key into the home so Roger could enter their home and then, like, sit and wait for Larry and Roberta Duke to arrive home. He said the date must be carefully chosen to ensure he and his brother Mike had alibis for the time of the killings. Duke said his parents both had insurance policies, so he would be willing to raise the payment by $5,000 if Roger was willing to do the job. The last recorded phone call took place on January 8, 1999. So this is just four days after Roger went and spoke with the police. Like, they're not messing around. I love it. Duke told Roger that his brother Mike had agreed to the extra $5,000 for Roger to shoot and kill their parents. Bob Duke offered to send him money to go buy 22, but to, but you know he declined to give him the key, as he had mentioned earlier. He decided that he wanted the killings to not look planned in any way, so Roger would need to break into their home. During the phone call, Roger tried to get Duke to talk about the killing of Liana and Eric in 1996, but Duke wouldn't talk about it. Duke did mention that they had spoken about it in the past, but he didn't want to anymore. To his surprise, before the phone call ended, the police arrived and arrested Duke for conspiracy to commit murder. Duke was taken completely by shock. I wonder how that felt for Roger to be on the line when that was happening. That's crazy. Like, that would be crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's take our last break. Give your brain the natural nutrients, blood flow, and neurotransmitter support it needs to make the fight with depression an unfair fight. Get stronger daily with Whole Supplement. Build momentum each day with the Whole Depression Relief Stack, the three targeted daily formulas that will help you feel, enjoy, and progress again. So, how do you take the Whole Stack? One, wake up formula. Take wake up in the morning with a glass of water to kick off your day with motivation and energy. Number two is the daytime formula. Day take daytime around lunch to ensure you have the focus, mood, and productivity to power through the day. That sounds like something we all need. Number three, the sleep it off formula. Take sleep it off about an hour before you plan to go to sleep for amazing rest and brain support that will consistently set you up for better days. I've experienced depression since I was a teen. I try to do my best to take care of my mental and emotional health and manage my anxiety and depression. But even with medication, I can find myself struggling some days. I started taking whole supplement just a couple weeks ago, and I already feel like I am giving my body the armor it needs to win the fight each and every day. The ingredients in whole supplements have been used for hundreds of years. They just haven't been put together this way to help people struggling with depression. There are no proprietary blends and no hidden ingredients in whole supplement. So here's Adam Steer, founder and CEO of Whole Supplement. With the mission to help others who, like myself, have struggled with finding relief from depression and anxiety. Our number one goal is to empower everyone we can to make meaningful progress every single day. So now is the time to take care of your emotional and mental health. During the pre-launch offer, you can receive the entire whole depression relief stack at 15% off. Go to wholesupplement.com and use code ROCKYMOUNTAIN. Again, go to wholesupplement.com and use coupon code Rocky Mountain. Simplify your fight with the whole stack from Whole Supplement. A huge thank you to our sponsors. And now back to our story. So I feel like this investigation moved so quickly. Law enforcement worked like so quickly with Roger's help. They were able to gather the evidence they needed like within days. We don't see this very often. 
I agree. They were not messing around at all. Duke said that he was just joking. Like, he said he was just playing a practical joke on his friend. But who does that? That is yeah, the right. stupidest excuse I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The officials of Sweetwater County knew what needed to be done. They needed to open up Leanna and Eric's death investigations. At the start of the reinvestigation, Detective Merchant drove Prosecutor Harold Moneyhun out to the cliff where Leanna and Eric had died. Prosecutor Moneyhun said he realized that this was not some picnic area or like pretty railed off overlook. No, this was a rugged and dangerous outlook, not a place for anyone to spend time, let alone a baby who was like learning to walk and understand boundaries, right? Yeah, I mean, kids have no clue about boundaries. The prosecution team dove into the case. They were, there was stacks and stacks of reports to read and review. Moneyhun told press that something that really stuck out to him was a certain autopsy photo of Leanna. It was a close-up of her neck, and he could clearly see linear bruises across her neck. He sent a photo to a well-known pathologist, and the pathologist said it looked like a ligature mark. I don't know how this was missed in the original. So it looked like something was used to strangle her before she went over the cliff. The state and Leanna's family were faced with a difficult decision. The prosecution team wanted to exhume the bodies of Leanna and Eric. They had been laid to rest four years ago. There was no guarantee that the bodies would show evidence of foul play, but there was a chance they could find defensive wounds or signs of a physical attack before they went over the cliff. Initially, not surprisingly, the family was not happy about the exhumation, yet they understood what was on the line here. I mean, after tears and a lot of emotion, they were supportive. They had to find the truth to the tragic death of Leanna and Eric. So on July 7th, 2000, at the Riverview Cemetery in Sweetwater County, the bodies were exhumed and sent to Cheyenne to see three state pathologists. The pathologist at the state crime lab painstakingly performed an examination of the bodies. Due to decomposition, almost all of the soft tissue was either gone or was not in the condition to show signs of disruption. The results came in, quote, the autopsy cannot determine and, quote, no evidence of, end quote, nothing was gained from the bodies being exhumed. Heartbreaking. I know they had to do it. I understand why they had to do it. But I actually had an old friend that worked at the cemetery. Really? Yeah. And he had the job of when a, when a grave collapses that he would go in and bring it up. And he said, it's crazy. Like, if they can keep water out of the casket, mm-hmm. if the concrete vaults they use, if, if it actually works, the bodies are in incredible shape. But once the water gets in, there's just no, I mean, like, the caskets just fall apart. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm assuming probably some water got in, something like that. Interesting. But, I mean, I understand how they had, how they had to try, right? For sure. Merchant and Moneyham decided to try a few tests. On November 10th, 2001, they went back to the site of the deaths. They used dummies with, like, the weight and height of both Leanna and Eric and tested several different falls. They, you know, marked the exact location of the bodies at the bottom of the cliff with, like, the first site marked where the bodies initially hit the rocks at the base of the cliff and then the path where the bodies had rolled down to the hill where they had stopped. So, you know, those weighted dummies that are like, yeah. it, it's, it simulates how humans can be like kind of floppy, mm-hmm. you know, so they used those. Interesting. They were hoping to prove foul play 
maybe a sign of a push at the top of the lookout or maybe being thrown like with more force before the fall. No such luck. All of the tests resulted with the same type of fall. Again, nothing was gained. Again, nothing. The pros- Yeah, the prosecution had no hard forensic evidence, yet the state decided to go forward and press charges of first-degree murder. Duke, of course, pleaded not guilty. We got to give these guys props. I mean, they're kind of striking out yeah. on everything, but like, to, doing to go forward, I think it's great. The trial began on August 12, 2002. The prosecution presented 49 witnesses. The defense presented six, including Bob Duke himself. Prosecution case cornerstone was none other than, you know, his good pal Roger, Bob Duke's old friend. Roger testified that he had been a longtime friend of Duke's. He stated he remembered Duke was not happy at all when Leanna became pregnant in high school. He said Duke felt like he had to get married. Roger had spent a lot of time with the Duke family, and he couldn't remember a time when Duke showed any affection to little Eric. Like, no kisses, no hugs, no playtime between father and son. I hate this guy, Melanie. I hate him. (laughs) Sad. Yeah, another man, Don Johnson, who worked with Duke in the past, testified he never observed any displays of affection between Duke and Leanna or between Duke and Eric. Duke didn't even like to speak about his family. Deborah Litz testified to seeing Duke yelling at Leanna and Eric at Smith's grocery store. He knocked over the shopping cart and screamed at them as Leanna, who was crying, picked up the items and put the items back in the shopping cart. She also testified that Leanna told her, quote, sometimes he wants to kill me, end quote. This is the worst guy ever. What would you do if you saw a man screaming at his wife and child at the grocery store? Heartbreaking. Another friend of Duke's, David Dell, testified that Duke liked to go out and, quote-unquote, chase girls. He wouldn't wear his wedding ring. The state also presented witnesses who testified of having sexual affairs with Duke while he was married. Duke had told Roger that it was impossible for him to get a divorce because his parents would never approve of it. He's an adult. Plus, Duke told Roger that he would never pay child support. Yeah, oh my gosh. This guy needs to grow a pair. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be vulgar, but he needs to grow a pair. Seriously. You are a man and you were worried about your parents not approving. So murder is a better solution. I think his parents would have agreed to a divorce. I agree. Mm -hmm. That's just like ridiculous. What an immature way of thinking. I think it's pretty safe to say that Liana would have much rather raised her baby on her own mm-hmm. than share a bed with a man who was capable of so much evil. Roger testified that a few months before Liana and Eric died, Duke had offered him $15,000 to kill his family. Roger thought he had just made like a sick joke. Then while the friends were four-wheeling about a month later, Duke brought it up again, but this time he raised it to the 20000 which is what he initially told Lieutenant Meekum. Roger said he would consider it. I don't know if he really was considering it or if he was like just in shock. I can't imagine somebody offering me money to kill somebody. Like this isn't something that you expect to talk to your best friend about, like eliminating his whole family. Yeah, it's weird. I I don't know. I, I kind of probably think maybe both. Yeah. Another few weeks after the second conversation, when Roger said he would consider it, the topic came up again by Duke. He asked how much it would cost for Roger to get the job done. Roger said he would do it for $23,000. Duke replied by saying, quote, For that amount, I don't want to know when, I don't want to know where, just do it. Roger talked to his brother, Roland Broberger, and another friend, Mike Dieters, 
that same day and told him told them about the offer but you know they left out he left out any name specifically ultimately roger ended up backing out of the crime thankfully i'm glad he didn't do it definitely thankfully the day that Leanna and Eric died, Roger told Dieters that the wife and child that died that day were the two he was asked to kill. Bob Duke was very, very familiar with the Lost Dog Trail area. He was an avid four-wheeler and explorer. Yeah, he knew what areas were safe to take his little family and what areas would not be safe to take his family. On August 10th, he chose to take his family to one of the most dangerous areas in all of Sweetwater County. Roger further testified about all of the phone calls he and Duke had between October 1998 and Duke's arrest on January 8th. Yay. (laughs) Roger also testified that at first, Duke asked him to get some semi-automatic pistols with silencers. Later, he upgraded his favor to murder. Roger testified that Duke said, quote, I've done family before. I don't like it. Law enforcement emergency workers testified about all the different stories that Duke had told them on the day that Eric and Leanna had died and his, like, odd demeanor. They also testified how easy it was to get down to the bodies that day, which was the exact opposite of what Duke had told them. Their testimonies included Duke told them that he and his family were exploring an area that he had never been to before, which was a 100% total lie. In fact, he'd been there many times before. Friend after friend after friend testified that he was very familiar with the area. Eric was chasing lizards on the top of the cliff and playing with his toys at the edge. I mean, what parents allow this dangerous situation? I don't believe that Leanna would have been okay with this at all. Everything is said. She's a great mom. Exactly. Duke went to the vehicle to get a drink and popcorn, as he told some other people. So he can't even keep his, like, snack choices correct. Duke also told one official that he did not see Eric or Leanna fall off the cliff. Yeah, he told another he saw Eric slip and Leanna grab his arm and saw both fall over the edge. Connie Armbell, a neighbor of the Duke family, testified that she heard Duke yell and scream at Leanna all the time. He would talk down to her and call her vulgar names. Yeah. Loralee Roos, Leanna's sister, testified that Leanna was terrified of heights and would never choose to hang out on a cliff. She also testified Leanna was very protective and attentive mother and she would never ever allow her child to run around stand near the edge or like throw rocks over the edge of the cliff in fact prosecutor money Hunt said that even though roger was star witness i love this the second star witness was definitely the overlook and cliff itself no mother would ever take her child there to play on august 15th the sweetwater county courts allowed the jury themselves to go out to flaming gorge cliff and see the sight of the death. I cannot imagine how powerful that must have been. One by one, the jurors walked out to the cliff's edge and looked over the 200-foot drop to the bottom, to the site where Leanna and Eric took their last breaths. The prosecution clearly stated that they did not have any physical evidence, no eyewitnesses, no DNA, but they clearly had common sense on their side. Just eight short days later, the jury returned with the verdicts. Guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of soliciting the murder of his wife and son, and two counts of soliciting the murder of his parents. About a month later, Judge Jer Reichman sentenced Duke to life terms on all six counts, with all but two counts to run consecutively. Prosecutor Moneyhun said, quote, Each and every count with which the defendant has been convicted shows the defendant's willingness to kill a human being 
a family member for selfish personal gain. And that's what it was all about. It was like selfish, materialistic reasons. Mm -hmm. So Roger was in the courtroom the day of Duke's sentencing. After the courtroom was adjourned, he sought out Leanna's father and Eric's grandfather. He asked the man and the rest of the family for forgiveness. Forgiveness for his small amount of participation, for not coming forward sooner, and for not doing all he could possibly do to stop the murders. With an incredible sense of humanity and humility, Liana's father thanked Roger for coming forward, for helping the police and prosecution in building the case against Duke. Roger was overwhelmed with the love the family showed, and he felt a huge weight off of his shoulders. Oh my gosh, that guy is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got to say, like, while researching and writing this episode, I think I hit my keyboard harder than I needed to at times. Like, the narcissism of Bob Duke is just sickening, don't you think? Mm -hmm. His willingness to, like, sacrifice the lives of literally the four people who probably loved him the most in the entire world is mind-blowing to me. I don't know how you could look at another human being and plan their death, let alone an innocent child. His child. Yeah, it's his child. Something I can never understand. Yeah. So we want to give a big shout out to the Sweetwater County prosecution team and the police and the FBI and everyone who participated and worked on this case. They like really threw all they could into this conviction. Yeah. Kudos, Wyoming. You're in good hands. And I've got to say really quick, I'm again, like I said, I'm super scared of heights. And writing this episode was like making me sick at times. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. My husband and I went to New York a few months ago, and I literally had like a panic attack on top of 30 Rock. I like can't do heights, no, even when you are under a huge steel structure. I can't do it. No, it's so scary. Like the saddest thing to me is like we know she was scared of heights, right? Mm -hmm. I went on a backpacking trip and was on what I felt like was the steepest cliff, the side of a cliff having to cross over, and I froze. Like I just couldn't move. So I don't know how she felt like. Getting so near to the edge of a cliff, she just must have been terrified. What do you think, Mel? Like, how did Duke get Liana near the cliff's edge? I mean, there we have a lot of possibilities. I mean, we're just pure speculation here, but I don't know. I don't. Sounds like she might have been strangled before with the ligature. Marks, yeah, so she could have not been alive. Mm -hmm. Right. That's yeah. probably the biggest possibility. Yeah. Well, I think that you know Roger talking to Liana's parents and everything, and and seeking that forgiveness and receiving that forgiveness. Is it like a super good feel good? Yeah. But we also have a really good Rocky Mountain redemption. Yes. Let's share one that will reaffirm your faith in humanity. Yeah. Uh -huh. We've got a great one courtesy of Good News Network. A college wrestler saves his best friend against a grizzly bear attack. It takes bravery to compete in college wrestling. And sophomore NJCAA wrestler Kendall Cummings needed every ounce of it when he decided he was not going to let a mama grizzly bear maul his best friend to death. Last year, Cummings was out with his friends, Brady Lowry, Gus Harrison, and Oren Jackson, in the Wyoming woods looking for shed antlers from elk, moose, and mule deer, which along with being a fun way to pass time in the woods, can also earn a college kid like a few hundred dollars for a big pair of antlers. A few hundred bucks is a lot to a college kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, the four buddies were out in the Bobcat Hulahan Trail, which sits on the outskirts of, of Yellowstone, when in the late afternoon they decided to split up to cover more ground and meet back together on a large rock at the top of a hill. Ryan Hokensmith at ESPN wrote that Brady turned around to warn Kendall not to step in this fresh pile of bear scat when what was likely a female grizzly bear. 
which can weigh around 500 pounds, slammed into him. And I'm pretty sure that aren't the female grizzlies more like violent? They can be more aggressive. I think especially when their babies are involved. When they have babies, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mama, that's where mama bear comes from. Oh, I'm a mama bear. Oh, for sure. For sure. The impact from the bear knocked the young man over a dozen yards. That is really far. And she continued to swat at him as he rolled, quote, dribbling him like a basketball. Kendall was not about to let it happen, and after trying to use his voice to scare her away, he jumped on her back to distract her after she had managed to pin Brady up against a tree. That takes him bravery. That's crazy. I love it. Mm -hmm. Then Kendall ran as fast as he could, but we all know grizzly bears can sprint over 30 miles per hour. Bears are really fast. It wasn't even a few seconds before she had turned around and leapt on him, Kendall, instead. Quote, I can't even express how grateful I am for him, Brady told Cowboy State Daily. I don't know what I'm going to pay him back. I don't. I owe him everything. Grizzly bear attacks are extremely rare, eight in the last 150 years, with a risk rate of about one in 27 million. So, guys, don't be scared to go outside. Totally. Hunters and others who work in the wilderness say the only way to survive an attack like this is to play dead which is exactly what Kendall did as soon as he realized he could do nothing else. So Kendall suffered horrific injuries, but Brady, who had had the better of it, managed to escape the scene, call 911, and meet up with their two friends who were completely unaware of what was happening. Poor guys. Eventually, the bear lost interest in the limp body of Kendall, who stumbled to his feet and backed down the trail where he met up with Brady and the others. The guy was in a bear attack, and he managed to get back up and walk to safety. This guy's amazing. The two were eventually medically evacuated by helicopter. At a trauma center in Billings, Montana, surgeons stitched and reconstructed Kendall's face and head, which the bear had repeatedly bit. Oh, my gosh. Brady was taken to a less-equipped hospital in Powell, Wyoming, but was eventually transported to Billings and to the same room as Kendall. Brady's father, Dallas, drove all the way up from Utah to Billings to marvel at the 21-year-old sophomore who was prepared to give it all so he could rescue his son. Quote, you saved my son's life, he told Kendall. I would have rather died than have gotten away and known I could have helped, Kendall told him. That's amazing. So 100 days after the attack, last January, Brady competed in the NJCAA wrestling meet while Kendall not yet medically cleared to go back to the mat, cheered him on. Yeah, such an amazing story. Mel, I'm pretty sure I would totally jump on a grizzly bear to to protect you. I really would. You're so I sweet. Would. I, I would do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever watched the show Something Bit Me? No. It's on Disney+. Plus. Check it out, everybody. It's really good. They talk about, they recreate the stories of people who have been bit or attacked by different animals. And that's awesome. Yeah, you know they all survive because it's them telling their story and then they do like a reenactment of it. But it's really cool. Oh, I'm going to watch like it. Yeah. That's a crazy coincidence because I don't know if you know this about me, Mel. I don't kill spiders. I do know that about you. I came to your house the other day and saw a spider and you're like, just leave it. I don't kill spiders. Like, I think they're good luck. Yeah. And they kill everything. But I got bit by a spider last week in my sleep. And I'll show you after we're done recording. It's on my neck. And like it like got the tissue got all like hard. My husband's like, we need to take you to the hospital. I'm like, no, I'm fine. But yeah, it like killed some tissue on my neck. It's a big one. for good luck. But I'm still not going to kill spiders. I think they're good luck still. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today. Again, please share, 
send us a message so we can get a sticker to you and we will be back next wednesday with another story for you yeah don't forget to share social media it really helps us out we appreciate it mel will you give us our socials of course so <laughs> follow us on facebook you can just search rocky mountain red-handed our instagram is at rocky mountain red-handed or you can send us an email rocky mountain red-handed at gmail.com she's so good at that isn't she I have to practice. Yeah, he won't do. Yes. No, but also don't forget to check out our social medias because we're going to have pictures from this episode. So you can see those cute little pinchable cheeks of Eric's and you can see the awesome photos after this grizzly bear attack. So Mel, until next time, keep your hands clean.